This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. This one is in response to Fright, Pres- Pres- Fright Fest Presents, a series of six films that have been released under the Fright Fest banner. And uh, one of them was like the one that got away uh, from my coverage of, um, of Fright Fest during August, and that was The Sand. Um Please introduce yourself, uh, my guest for this new podcast. Uh, hi, Stuart. Uh, this is Isaac Gabayev, the director of The Sand, um, phoning in from Brooklyn in New York. And we've just discovered that the clots going back in Britain is not at the same time as clots going back in New York. Um, yeah, there was a, uh, we, got off, we got off to a delayed start on our podcast here. Indeed. Well, do you want to, do you, for those that ha, for those that were at Fright Fest that didn't get, or those that weren't at Fright Fest even, do you want to give us a synopsis as to what, a brief synopsis to what The Sand is about? Uh, yeah, The Sand is, um, in a way, like, sort of a, an homage to, uh, you know, 80s horror flicks. It's about a, um, a group of kids who are having, a, like, a beach party at night after spring break, for, for spring break, and they find this slimy pod... Um, during the course of their revelry, and then uh, in the morning when they wake up, most of the party members are gone, and the remaining people are basically not touching the sand. So two people in a life tower, two people, four people in a car, someone on a picnic bench, someone in a trash can, and um, you know, a monster essentially is. They find out right away has hatched underneath the sand and is eating them as soon as they. Uh, as soon as they touch it. So the movie is about how they need to find a way to try to get off the sand and find out what, you know, what is the, like, the details of what this monster is and what it's going to do to see if they can escape. I mean, it's, 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 it's despite the open space, it is, um, it, it is like a contained horror film outside. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's the idea that you could have... Um, you know, an open space could be just as claustrophobic as, uh, you know, a contained space. And, um, you know, I guess unlike other horror movies, you know, they've had a few little distinctions about it being set in the daytime 
and uh, being set on the beach. So I, I feel like there was something, you know, familiar enough about, you know, what this movie is that, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Um, no, 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 no. It was, it was, it wasn't. It was more an observation than criticism. It's, it's the the notion that usually the contained horror is this idea of you're you're trapped within some walls, and you know someone's going to find your way out, or you're trapped within the walls because of some malevolent presence. And this is this this is this this kind of terrifying idea that you can't move from where you are, <laughs> and then it's kind of like working out how you get to safety. Well, I think that was one of the things that, you know, drew us towards the movie, which was that script, the idea. Um, and, of course, you know, I think there's, like, uh, it owes a lot. This has been acknowledged a few times by the writers and myself and whoever, you know, that it owes a lot to the Stephen King story, The Raft, um, which is, you know, a sequence in Creepshow 2, um, where, the you know, essentially a, a similar kind of idea unfolds where, the you know, the kids swim out to this raft and the monster is, like, surrounding them in the water and kind of picking them off one by one. And, um, you know, it's also like the game that people used to play when they were kids where the floor is lava and you try not to touch the floor and, you know. <laughs> so so you, you, what, at what stage did you come on board with this then? Was the script already written or was it just was it, was it pitched to you as an idea and they went ahead and wrote it? Um, you know, it's a pretty strange, uh, like story about what happened is basically like I had a, um, uh, you know, I had a project in development with these producers and, um, you know, I think they were nervous about what they were going to like offer me in terms of what the budget was. And, you know, there's a concern for anyone when they're ponying up a certain amount of money that, um, you know, you're going to screw, screw it up. Um, you're gonna. Am I? Am I? Should I? Should I not curse? I almost found myself about to curse right there. You're, 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 in, you're in safe hands. You're okay. You you, okay. you need to curse. Don't be worried. Well, they don't want you to fuck the project up. Basically, they don't want you to lose their money. And uh, <laughs> so I went and wrote a different movie. And um, you know, it was something that was going to be made on a smaller scale than whatever the budget was that we were asking for on this project to come. Yeah. And. Um, yeah. That was a t completely different movie than what actually happened with the sand. As I went out to Los Angeles, um, this movie was about four people who were on a boat sailing between the islands in Hawaii. And it was really like a drama. It wasn't really, you know, intended to be a horror movie at all. And as that movie started to come together a few weeks before we were supposed to leave to go to Hawaii, um, there was a conflict with one of the actors' schedules and because of rainy season and, you know, the other actors who had been, you know, scheduled to be in this movie, they had busy schedules. There was just no way to save it, and the project collapsed completely, uh, like, in, in a sort of heartbreaking uh, manner. And then, you know, I, I was sitting there in, you know, it was like early in the morning, and I was, like, um, you know, feeling pretty depressed about it, and I was, you know, having like sipping on a cup of scotch and I'm like watching uh this documentary about Roger Corman right. and I see this inter I see this interview with Peter Bogdanovich and he's talking about how you know when he was young he said I worked for Harvey and I you know I wanted to be a director and Harvey told me if you know if you if you can think up a story that fits into this movie that we shot half of well, you can come with me to Ireland I'll give you the crew on the weekend you fill in the blanks and make it work and uh, there you go, you're a director. And so while I was getting, literally while I'm watching that scene, the producers call me and they say, hey, look, can you talk? And I said, yeah, okay, sure, let's let's talk, what are we talking about? So they said, 
you know, the the bottom line is that, you know, we took this money from these investors and we can't just turn around and give it back. We have to make a movie. But seeing as how there's no way to make your movie in Hawaii, um, we want to hire you to direct this movie. The only problem is we don't know what this movie is yet and you have to give us an answer today. That's like, is, so, that, is that like, a, like the best and worst problem to have at the same time? <laughs> essentially, yes. Um, you know, and I being that I'm like getting my start, you know, as, as a director, um, my gut told me to, to go ahead and say yes to this and, you, you know, sort of uh, trust that everything is going to unfold in the right way. And so from that point on, things started happening very quickly as, you know, this project materialized and we were reading, you know, this kind of script. This was, we read a script that was called, um, psychotherapy that was about, uh, you know, a therapist who treats this biker guy and this kind of nerdy guy. And, you know, the biker, you know, he gets webbed into this whole life of crime with this guy. And we read a script that was about, you know, six surfers that went to, you know, a tropical island and had to deal with a, the soul of a pirate and who, you know, and, and each kind of script being like, in a way, just realizing that it wasn't the right thing for us, you know? So, um, as we found the sand, it, everything started to click together and we said like, okay, this is it. Because, um, you know, I think if you're going to pick a project, you also, you can't just pick any project and kind of hope for the best. You do have to pick something that is going to make sense to you. Um, for what you feel, you know, you can do with the project. And, um, the sand was the clear winner. So that's kind of how we got into that. And really then the time was about, you know, three weeks of just like, which is a, you know, a very fast and furious schedule to have. Usually you need more time to prep a movie, but as each, you know, as each piece came together, then, uh, we just kept moving forward until there we are three weeks later on the beach in Ventura shooting the sand. So what, what state was the script in at that point? You know, the script was, um, the script was very close to what we shot. Um, Alex Greenfield and Ben Powell wrote a, you know, they wrote a very smart script. Um, there was like a, you know, a few adjustments that had to be made and a lot of those adjustments, you know, the few adjustments that we did make really had to do with, um, making sure that they fit within the budget. Um, you know, cause you're working on a small movie. It's, you, you can't just do whatever you want. That's, you know, the, the, the bottom line restricts you from doing that. So, yeah. um, you know, there were some things that we would have loved to do, like have the, you know, the police, you know, the beach cruiser vehicle flip over and do, you know, fly through the air and do stuff like that. But, you know, there's just these little touches that needed to kind of be addressed. And, um, you know, there was a few like, um, not like uh, bickering about stuff, but, you know, they wanted it this way and we thought this was going to work best. And, you know, we went back and forth in, in a very actually like constructive and friendly manner. But, you know, the writers have their vision. And then when you come in as the director, like I'm coming from a production standpoint um, in, a, in a huge way from like my experience working on films. I was just trying to really think, you know, practically and be pragmatic about what can be done to make sure that it can be done the right way. So, um, a few little adjustments about stuff like that. And then, uh, I mean, that was pretty much it. You know, I, okay. uh, well, I talked well, to them. Go ahead. I was just going to say, with, with you saying you had like this, 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 um, this three week window to get everything ready, then in terms of, in terms of what you, what you chose, 
what you chose you would shoot, as it were, what what elements in that pre-production stage of the oncoming shoot seem the most insurmountable? And sort of what breaks did you get to, to sort of achieve what you wanted on, on camera? Or what did you do to get what you achieved? Or what did you have to do to get what you wanted to achieve on camera? You know, honestly, there was, um, I, I feel there was a feeling of, we can shoot what's in the script. So um, it was really more of a kind of like a small, you know, it was a, it was a smaller problem, you know, or I wouldn't even call it a problem. It was just like really figuring out the physical logistics of what, you know, originally the picnic bench was a, supposed to be a log, mm. you know, a gigantic log. So it was, where are we going to get this gigantic palm tree, you know, trunk? Um, and does it make sense that the tentacles wouldn't be able to creep up the side of this palm tree trunk and, you know, just pluck off whoever was there? Um, so we kind of talked about, like, what were those, you know, what were the items and what was the physical distance between each item? And the big thing really was finding the location because we had to pick a beach that looked like a familiar beach and that you could see places in the background without it being, you know, something that people were going to walk through the shot all the time and, and had to be believable that it was, like, empty. Thank God we shot during December, so there wasn't, like, so much to contend with in terms of people being at the beach. But I think that was the main headache, was really making sure that we found the right location. And, um, you know, we were pretty lucky to have... It's this place called Surfer's Knoll, and that's yeah. in, in Ventura. And, it, it you know, it sits in this little bit of a pocket. And you can see there's, you know, uh, the road and... Whatever's behind him, the cars and the parking lots are really out of the way and out of the shot. So it, when we found that place, the city of Ventura really wanted us to come shoot there. So, you know, that was like a, it was a win-win situation. So, so again, going, going, uh, while you're contending with the location and, and the kind of physical makeup of what the script's telling you to do, so I'm guessing, I mean, from a kind of a geeky sort of script point of view, you, you don't have any interior exterior. You're just in one place, aren't you? So in a sense, you'd just be moving, you're moving characters within, within a kind of, almost like in one room as it were. So, um, while you were setting all that up to make the, make the action work, how, how did, what, how did you go about casting the movie then in that, you know, while, because obviously that's got to be happening concurrent with it, hasn't it? With your three, in your three week window. Yeah. I mean, that, that was all very, very fast. Um, you know, uh, our DP Matt Wise is, is good friends with, um, Hector David Jr., who plays um, Vance, who's basically, you know, the kind of first, second uh, character to die. You know, his face melts off and his eyeball pops out. And um, he came in a recommendation. He was our first casting. You know, he used to be the Green Power Ranger. And um, he's really like an acrobatic master. He's like a, he's like a real-life ninja. And so <laughs> when we started to talk to him, you know, we started to talk to him, and that idea came up. You know, we were just trying to look to, you know, A, have a diverse cast, um, and B, find things about people that didn't, wasn't necessarily written into the script. You know, like that character of Vance was never written in as like this guy who's doing cartwheels and flipping off cars. Um, but we felt like that was going to be a great thing for the party and for the character and even made sense in a sense of like, who is this guy who's springing into action to help someone? Of course, he's got to go first, you know? Mm. Um, in that sense. And then we auditioned everyone else and kind of, we just tried to put the pieces together as each person, you know, to kind of weigh them against who existed already. So, 
Um, you know, even someone like Mitchell Musso, who, you know, I guess most famously played Miley Cyrus's brother on Hannah Montana, you know, like originally he, he came in to audition for the part of Jonah. And, you know, so you're, so you're looking at people going like, I, you know, I, I see him more as this other character. And, you know, so the offer was made for him to play this part or whatever it was. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of, uh, mostly it was through auditions. And we just tried to pick who was going to be the right person. And we did kind of want to make sure that we had a diversity to the cast and it wasn't just going to be all white people. <laughs> and you got, you got the very recognizable horror face of Jamie, Jamie Kennedy in there, yeah? That's correct. Um, you know, that's a part that we, there was a lot of different discussions about who, you know, might be a great person to play that character. And, um, you know, we were pretty, we were lucky to get Jamie to be that part. You know, he's a pretty like visible person, um, you know, to horror fans from the Scream movies. And, um, you know, I just he also, I just think he's really funny. And I used to, you know, when I first moved to New York, like 15 years ago, I used to watch, um, the Jamie Kennedy experiment where he just goes nuts, like dressing up in costumes. That was pretty much my dream job. Um, or that's like what I would have wanted to do is like dress up in costumes and, you know, mess with people uh, who don't know they're being messed with. Um, so we did got him, but you know, there was discussions of, of other people that might've been great for that part in terms of like, could we have gotten Bruce Campbell or David Hasselhoff? Um, you know, would have also been like, that would have been pretty terrific to get someone like that. But, um, you know, there's a lot of different things that go into casting in terms of like, people's schedules and how, you know, how much time they're going to spend on set and can they do it or do they want to do it. And so, um, yeah, I feel like we, everything came together in a way that we were, we were pretty lucky. You know, it's, it definitely is a kind of like, um, a nail biter a little bit as you just don't have so much time to, you know, you don't have so much space to make things happen. So, um, you know, like the movie when you're just rushing through prep, um, you know, that can be, that can be tough. That can be like a real pressure on you. But I do think for me, I kind of thrive off that situation because I'm used to working in production. I'm used to working on, you know, I've done a lot of kind of things where I had to deal with budgets and constraints and stuff like that. So I felt like a little, you know, I felt more comfortable believing in myself and saying like, I'll, I'll be fine. I can do this. If something comes up or this person says no, or something changes, no problem. I guess, yeah. I guess it's sort of like you don't you don't come up for air until the film's shot. It's like you, usually you would have a little. The usual pattern would be get all this ready, get ready to shoot, little breathing space, then heads up headlong into the shoot. I guess you just there was it was seamless, wasn't it? The process I, for you. It's, yeah, it's like a someone putting your head in a vice and squeezing <laughs> until until you know until the last day is over. Even then, you're really you know then you can sort of take a breath, but. You know, I like, once you, once you're in full blown production mode, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're on like a bullet train to your destination and that's that. There's just no way to jump off or get off. And you just, I obsess about things too. So of course I felt like I just, you know, from the moment I'm awake, I think even when I was just asleep, I was like dreaming about the movie and thinking about, you know, what are we going to do and how to solve this problem and, you know, but that's okay. That's like that is how things work. I think for me, at least, efficiently, so I can just keep my mind in the right place and get and keep your eye on the prize. You know. So, so the, the, when you talk about other productions, the lion's share of your experience is in 
kind of the art department, isn't it? Sort of props and stuff. Is that right? Is that my right thinking? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's if you're looking at it on paper, if you're looking at it on IMDb, that's that's what you're that's what you're going to see, which is accurate. I also went to school. I got my degree in animation, and I worked on James and the Giant Peach when I was kind of like finishing college, and I, you know, I had this idea I wanted to work for Disney, and I felt like that got a little that took a turn after I worked on Peach, and I didn't have a bad experience working with them. I just felt like I had more to offer the world in terms of like what I can do and what I can. You know, that I can get in and figure out more than just being a character animator for Disney. And um, so I, you know, after college, I was working in a hotel and I was taking a lot of photographs of like homeless people when I lived in San Francisco. That was really is kind of a big problem there. And I was living in this area where I had, you know, my window looked down onto the street corner where all this insane shit was happening at all hours of the day and night, seven days a week, you know. 12 months a year, it's just like chaos down there. So I bought this camera, and then I would sit, when I would hear something happening, I'd pick the camera up and I would start shooting, and then I think just over time, I just would sit there and just shoot all kinds of things that were happening at this corner, which I ended up making into a documentary, which is called People Watching, which is essentially exactly what it sounds like. It's more like voyeurism than... Um, you know, than like a traditional format of a documentary. And so a friend of mine, he worked for this movie company here in New York and there was no way that I could convince him to come to California. So when I came, I came out to New York to work on this movie with him and I had met a person, a woman at the hotel who represented directors and somehow got to talking to her about the movie. And so she said, look, when you come to New York, give me a call which I sort of tried to turn into a demand for a job of which she said she would give me an interview. And I went in there and I showed them like my photographs, um, the pieces of the film, my sketchbook and all this stuff saying kind of like, this is what I can do. And then I got hired by them as a creative consultant. And so I basically was working for this production company doing writing treatments, doing punch ups and, um, just writing, you know, writing content and helping them with stuff. And I was doing that for a few years before I started working in production. So okay. I, I was kind of on the creative end of things. And, but, you know, I really did want to get onto a set and see how things were done. And so then you can look, it was always in my mind to direct, you know, I was going to get there somehow, but it's just, you know, it's a, it's a very long road to, getting where you're going sometimes I felt like uh I just was tried to be persistent about what was happening and I do feel like any time you're spending on set you absolutely you know can be so invaluable to you in terms of what you're experiencing watching how things are made and how it's done and by who and so oh no I no guess- I totally agree with you I totally agree I, I, I've, I've been doing um I've ended up doing extra work of late one to earn a bit of money but there's no escaping it. You're on set and you can see what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people too, even, you know, maybe not other places, but in, in New York for sure that there's like, you know, there's a lot of people who work in production and they see it in a sense as a job. And, and that's that they want to kind of come in and do the work and be professional. And they want to go home to their wife and kids or, you know, their house or whatever it is. And, for me, it was not so much like, hey, I want, I want to get in there and be professional, but I'm also, I felt like 
a, you know, some kind of movie spy where I'm like just really looking at everything, trying to sponge up how things are done and what's happening and, you know, do, you know, make sure that I understand all these things about production because I think you direct a movie maybe when you're out of college and that could be, maybe the film could turn out great. I'm I definitely am not suggesting that anyone work in production for 10 plus years before they direct something, but I do feel like that was a very helpful thing to do. And, um, you know, I think that that helped to, in an all around sense, you know, with the, with the crafting of the film and, and just being able to deal with the situation where, um, you know, you, you're in a tight budget, you're on a tight schedule and to know what people are doing in different departments so that you're not just like, you know, uh, this Yahoo on set who's sort of like, you know, I wanted this shot. Well, no, well, 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 thinking about then, Isaac, well, what, what would you say were a couple of lessons learned from that kind of spy on set, as it were, that became useful to you when you, was, when you were in that position for the sand of being the director? What, what kind of things do you think you picked up that, that, that helped you make the sand? I think, you know, it's not necessarily in my nature to begin with to, you know, to be too diva-ish about, you know, this and that. I feel like unless it's really integral to the story and that that's something you need to fight for, that's that's okay to, to you know, to try to stick to your vision of what's happening. But I felt like, uh, you know, the most important thing that I, you know, that I learned from that experience was definitely if the producers are telling you this can't be done and we don't have the money, you know, then you need to be on your toes trying to figure out how you can do something else because you are going to need to do that, you know. There comes a time in every movie, and I've seen it happen on bigger projects. I've seen it happen on smaller projects, television shows, you know, feature films, whatever it is, where people do have to, you know, they have to give in and change something. And uh, that's that, you know, so... So, so when in in um, in shooting the film, then what what was you um, particular as as director? Then what were you particularly most proud? Of? So, what proved to be what you felt to be your big? Obviously, making the film is is the big achievement. I, I, I'm not trying to overshadow that, but in terms of making the movie, what what part of it do you consider to be the biggest achievement for yourself? And what 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 were you able to overcome to achieve to pull it off? I mean, you know, in the general sense, just surviving the shoot is is a feat. The real thing that I feel proud of is the tone of the film. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that there was a discussion between the producers and I and the writers and kind of like, what, what direction are you going to take this movie? Because we felt like, you know, I felt like one option was to have the actors in on the joke. And you just go full camp all the way. And then the other decision, which we kind of landed on, was to try to play it straight and let the humor kind of come through on its own because that's how, you know, they had it written like that in the script. And that was, a you know, whatever. And, and then, you know, to, like, have the actors really actually trying to play against something, which I think is actually not that easy as an actor as you're acting against something that really doesn't exist at all. Um and you're, you know, you have to keep up being scared and your emotions and all this stuff. Um, so, but yeah, I felt like the tone of the film, um, that was the thing that I, you know, I wanted to get right. Because if I screwed that up, then I, you know, very well could have fucked up the movie. But again, that's, you know, neither here nor there because you don't know. You, you make decisions and you live with them and you do try to trust your gut as an artist. And 
hope that people don't fucking completely hate what you're doing. So, well, yeah, I mean, the things that stood out for me in terms of that way, because I think, I think you're right. There is the, the, getting the tone right, and 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 it's it's. I think for horror films and for comedies, I think you know they're really they're both hard genres. So they either are what they are, what the genre is meant to be, or they're not. You know, it's kind of both both those both those two worlds of cinema um, need need to sort of I sort of I guess abide by some stuff. But obviously, you also have to be dramatic and interesting. And I think, like for example, going back to the Jamie Ke- Kennedy character, he plays a funny character, but in the in the in the humour that's within his character, it heightens the drama for the rest of the characters because we, the audience, know what trouble they're in. The policeman doesn't, and so the way he's behaving, which is re- you know, which is kind of dark, funny, enables the the action for the actors to get more, you know, to to get heightened. Equally, I thought the. Um, the interplay between some of the, the female characters, I can't remember the, the, the exact names in terms of um, who, who it's the, the, the one who slept, the, uh, slept with the girl's boyfriend and and them having their, their own internal fight in the midst of what was happening. I thought that was quite cool as well. Um, yeah, and, and all credit to you, Alex and Ben, for um, you know crafting the story in that way of like, it, you know, it has these familiar tropes that you sort of understand that you're getting into when you watch the movie, the jock, the, you know, the cheating girl, you know, the sneaky girlfriend, the, you know, the bimbo or the disbelieving cop or whatever that is. Mm. Um, and I, I felt like, um, you know, that was one of the reasons you read the script and that's why I felt like it worked, you know, it kind of applied the, um, you know, it changed around some of the, you know, expectations that people have about those movies. And, uh, I, you know, as a guy, too, like, I felt like that was it was a more fun movie to shoot, playing with those conventions and kind of giving those stronger roles to the women. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I've got to say, because it, 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 it starts off with the, um, you know, with too much away, but in terms of the story, the story starts off with men taking the lead and, we're gonna we're gonna pitch out here. We're gonna fix this. We're gonna fix that. And then as 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 incidents occur, it becomes more about how the women cope with it and the actions they take, as opposed to being damsels in distress that need saving. I mean, yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's in a nutshell, right there. Is just you know, t- t- working within um, you know people's expectations, defying them a little bit. That was another thing that I thought was really. Um, smart and that I really loved about the movie is that it sort of misleads you from the first shot into thinking this might be some kind of found footage horror movie, which it isn't. So, um, yeah, I feel, I felt like they found some pretty clever ways to, um, you know, take what, you know, mash up what, what you think this movie may or may not be. So, um, for the purposes of people listening then, um, the sand is out now, isn't it? Available in the UK on all kinds of VOD platforms. I noticed on my own Virgin me, Virgin Movies on, which is a cable company in the UK, I can get it through there. Um, obviously iTunes and, and others, others like that. And it's available now, yeah? That's correct, yeah. It's been out for about a week. Um, I don't know. I'm not clear on all of the United Kingdom platforms it is. I know, you know, it's available on Amazon and iTunes. Yeah, I'll put, I'll put them. I'll put them in the show notes. I've got details from uh, 
from Beth at the PR about everything. So that's not a problem. Um, so, get, only to me, one last question for you that I like to ask everybody, especially when I'm interviewing people from overseas, is as we're Britflix, and usually I, I cover British filmmaking, but because Frightfest has that bigger bigger reach outside the, outside of these shores, but it's a British thing, I get my chance to speak to... Um, Foreign filmmakers, and also, like I said to you before we even started recording, when the film Fright Fest film presents series come out, prior to Fright Fest, I'd interviewed five of the six filmmakers, and you were six. So, I, as a, as a little bit of OCD kicked in, and I wanted the full set. So now, now we've done this, I've got the full set. So, can you recommend us a British horror movie that you're a big fan of? You know, you can say more if if it's not about choosing one, but any particular film springs to mind. Um, you know, my main recommendation, if you have not seen a field in England, would be to go out and find that movie and watch it. Um, pretty incredible film. Um, definitely defied what I thought or it might be. I didn't know that much going into it, and I felt like I was um, floored by that movie and was excited to see whatever else he is going to be doing. Ben Wheatley is the director of that film. Have you seen any of his other films? No. That's all. That's all I've seen. Wow. Well, I can. I'll, I'll. I'll recommend you back. His previous film was called Kill it, uh, Sightseers, which is a um, like kind of dark horror comedy. And then there's Kill List before then, which is a, an amazing film about two hitmen. Um, and then his very no budget film called Down Terrace. Um, that's great. I'm, I'm excited to go and check it out. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to come on the Britflix podcast. We we made it in the end. Thank you for having me. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.